Anytime there's something we must do and our action has to be first for God to respond, then we point away from that very core of what is the gospel message. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Rich Rodowski. And I'm Emily Wilson. We are coming up on Halloween, or for you Lutherans out there, we know it's also the Reformation. Yeah, priorities. Priorities. And we had an interesting opportunity to talk with Dr. Mike Rodewald, our executive director on the topic of spiritual warfare and animism, mm-hmm. um, which does have some connections, or at least we're going to try to make them <laughs> for <laughs> Halloween. But before we get into that, we want to invite you to make sure Essentially Translatable is showing up in (laughs) all the places. Yes. (laughs) We really have had some awesome guests on there. They're really great for road trips, I've been told. You know, just kind of an opportunity to engage, hear from different perspectives around the world. So that's what you want to do. Uh, Give yourself a Reformation treat. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe to Essentially Translatable wherever you listen to podcasts. It's true. So uh, Dr. Rodewald is our executive director, has been on the podcast several times. I had the chance to talk with him, and he did his dissertation work related to animism. So he has some experiences about animism, his lucky socks story, for example, and we'll find that there's quite a bit relatable when we really stop and think about how we, even as Christians, approach the world and think about things like luck or why am I having a bad day or Mm -hmm. why are things not working out for me? Our minds can so easily go back to ways of thinking that are essentially animistic and Mm -hmm. uh, the Word of God has something to say to us and to give us hope. Right. Yeah. Being able to have that self-awareness, right? Sometimes it's like taking that step back and being like, okay, well, what's actually happening here? Like is God at the center of this or, you know, and just being able to have, you know, that discernment and and wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And know that when you experience difficulties in life, you're not alone. You can read the scriptures and see people who are over and over again, either by their story or even like in the Psalms expressing Mm -hmm. like, is God with me or not? And Mm -hmm. how do I know? Because what I'm experiencing right now doesn't feel that way. Uh, And yet, even just having that conversation and remembering that God is present builds faith. And that's really the connection to Bible translation then, because uh, as Dr. Mike will say, an accurate, beautiful, and clear translation of the Scripture will provide that source of faith and hope for people who otherwise are left without other ways of thinking about the world except for how can they get in charge of the situation and get in control of the situation. So with no further ado, our conversation with Dr. Mike Rodewald. Well, it is great to welcome LBT Executive Director Dr. Mike Rodewald back to the Essentially Translatable podcast. Good to have you with us today, and we are talking about animism. Yeah, Rich, it's really a pleasure to be here with you again, and I get to talk about animism. It's kind of, I'm going to say it's not a well-known word. I was talking to someone the other day, and I mentioned it, and they were like, I don't know what that is. I never heard that particular word before. So it's not the word itself, which is maybe interesting. It's the meaning behind what does animism stand for. And I think it's best understood by explaining what animism is not. So, for example, the Christian understanding of the spiritual is that we have a creator God, and our creator God is a God of grace. Uh, He's given us the gift of Jesus Christ as uh, our salvation. That's a free gift of salvation. 
And there's nothing we must do to accomplish it. That's rather it's ours by faith. And in gratefulness, then we respond and we live our lives, which appreciate what God has done for us. Right. So in pure Christian religion, then, God's actions first and our response is second. Animism is the complete opposite of that. It arises from our human's condition and it thinks somehow that we can do something to affect behavior, affect the spiritual world so that we get what we want. That's an innate sense we seem to have as part of our human condition and the spiritual and the physical are somehow linked. So if we can do something to manipulate the spiritual, Mm. we get what we want. Or if something bad happens, uh, the spiritual is responsible for it, and so we have to appease the spiritual world. So I'll give you an example of that. So I'm guilty of animus practice. Uh, I've I've been uh, uh, guilty of that. When I was in eighth grade, I had a pair of socks, and I played on the basketball team. And when I put on those socks, I played better basketball than when I did not put on those socks. Those socks were my lucky socks. And I took those socks, and I did not wash them. I hid them from my mother so that the luck would not be washed out of them. I put those on before every game, and um, I never did crack the first team. But I had the belief that those socks helped me out someplace, that there was a spiritual component called luck someplace that was blessing me when I wore those socks. So note my animus practice, my action first, I put on the socks, the spiritual response gives me what I want, second. Right, okay. So... Yeah, I mean, when you start to think of uh, animism that way, then I think uh, a lot of us would could reflect and I, think of... There is nobody that can say, I haven't done something <laughs> right. like that. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about, in traditional cultures, some of the places that you've worked, what does this look like and how does this uh, affect people's lives? In traditional cultures, perhaps animism is practiced more deeply than in others, but the, every society on earth has animus practice inside. You can find that uh, underneath. The underlying premise, it's simple. But the forms and rules of animus practice in specific places are countless. The basic premise in traditional practice is that the spiritual world and physical worlds are intrinsically linked. And so action in one causes action in another. Uh, There's no coincidence. If something bad happens, the spiritual world must be appeased. If something good happens, you've made the right spiritual, you've done the right things, and the spiritual world is happy with that. And there's a sense that... Our behavior is linked to spiritual happiness or unhappiness. Usually, uh, the spiritual world in traditional religions, and uh, I worked in Africa for many, many years, and so much of what I know is traditional religion, African traditional religion. There usually is a creator or a high god, and then there are spiritual beings or ancestral spirits, each containing the ability to help or harm humans with their spiritual power, whatever spiritual power they hold. For example, in traditional Korean shamanism, they claim that there's over 18,000 spiritual beings. They're classed in 273 different spirit types. For the Yoruba of Nigeria, they claim over 1,700 subordinate deities to the high god, Mm -hmm. which is Olodumare. So the forms, the belief systems are just almost countless when you're talking about each traditional society, what has arisen over there, what the belief system is. In addition to these kind of spirit beings that are present in the spiritual world, there's also something called life force. And life force is kind of an ambient spiritual power of the universe, and it's thought to be present in physical objects. 
For example, mountains, trees, rivers, minerals, rocks, they're all believed to have this kind of ambient spiritual power. And if you know the right way to access the spiritual power, you can get your desire met or you can get healed or whatever it happens to be. So in the animist world, you're always seeking to access power, whether from a spirit being, from the creator God, who usually is pretty far away, considered mm-hmm. to be quite distant, yeah. or from these ambient, this ambient power, which is kind of a life, considered life force. It has many, many different names like that. Okay, so how does somebody know the right way to access this power then? Ah, that's exactly, that's kind of the question. You're probably thinking, how do you access that power? So... Um, There are many ways to access that power or the belief system as such. Uh, One of the primary ways that people quickly fall into or a human condition is ritual is kind of a primary way to access power. So if you know the correct sequence of actions, words, you perform them in a certain way, then it's believed that the spiritual power must respond as you would wish or as one would wish. So there's a downside if you perform that ritual incorrectly, then spiritual power can actually turn on you and cause you to have great harm. So you're kind of between this this in-between. You have to do ritual exactly correct. If you call on the name of a spiritual power, that brings power to the ritual. If you do something wrong, then that spiritual power can turn upon you. So it's only in the correct practice that a ritual actually accomplishes the purpose that you want it to do. You bind the power to do what you want to do. The success of that ritual doesn't depend upon my moral character or uh, whatever it happens to be. It depends upon the correct performance of the ritual. So rituals, it's the access to power, and uh, it does not matter if someone's using that for good or what we might term evil. And sometimes that's what happens, especially in things like voodoo, uh, where uh, spells are put on other people and uh, power is, is used in that way through ritual. So then if there's got to be a, somebody's got to be an expert to know how to do these rituals and things, right? And if it doesn't work, then is it because it's the expert's fault or what's like, or does it always work? Yeah. Well, let me give you a, give an example. I was sitting in uh, Northern Liberia in my town. Uh, many, this happened many years ago. There was a young man living next door to me and suddenly a big crowd was rushing over to this young man's house. And uh, I thought, well, let me just go over see what's happening over there, too. We got over there. This young man was writhing on the floor, and he has foaming from the mouth. I said, what's going on? And uh, someone said, well, he had a charm, and this charm was to help him get a girlfriend, and it worked really well, but it had some conditions on it. It had rituals that you had to maintain that, that power, the spiritual power in the charm. And he failed to maintain these conditions. Wow. And now the spiritual power has turned upon him. Wow. So I, I, I found it very fascinating. And then someone said, we need to go see the religious specialists. They're called Zoes in that particular community that made this charm for this young man. And so someone turned to me and said, you have a motorbike. Can you take us out to see this religious specialist, Zoe? And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. Let me go along with the, <laughs> observe what is happening here. I, I didn't have any clue what was happening. We got on the motorbike, went out to this village. There was a man sitting in front of a hut. And as we got off the motorbike, he just held up his hand. And he said in the local language, he said, stop. If the problem is fixed, you can go back. And so my friend said, let's go back. And uh, we did not explain the question to this man or anything else. But we got back and the young man was walking around. And so from their perspective, what had happened was he had, the power had turned on him. 
but the religious specialist was able to bind that power to stop him uh, from hurting that young man anymore, which was evident. I, I looked at it a whole different way. Yeah. Actually, I don't really understand what happened. Right. I just got to observe what was happening on that. But that's an example of how religious power is used or spiritual power is used in African traditional practice. Yeah, and then I guess to for the sake of our listeners, to be clear, there's something behind it. There's something actually happening, it seems, spiritually, as far as you can... You know, as far as I can tell, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I Which have to say, from, from it... the West, I'm thinking, hey, did he have an epileptic fit? Right. Or did was it something explainable by science? I don't know. I could have done a lot of thought on that. I can't explain the witch doctor or the zoo just telling us to go back without explaining what the problem is. Yeah. I've conjectured a lot, and it's... I'll find out sometime. Sure. Yeah. So thinking about the Bible and Christians um, reading the Bible, let's talk about how having an understanding of animism will help you better understand some of what you see in the text of Scripture, what's going on as God or the people of Israel encounter other cultures and, and places. What I love about God's Word is it's for all people in all cultures. Yeah. And we tend to, to read the Bible or understand the Bible through the lens of our own culture. Yeah. And so we can actually maybe miss or maybe something's not present, but another culture will read the same text and understand it in a bit different way because they have a different worldview. Yeah. And the worldview of animus, to read Scripture through the animus lens, people will perceive sometimes text differently than I would perceive that. Now, the end result is always the same, is God brings faith through Scripture and people understand it in that way. But how people get there can be different as we read the text. I love 2 Kings 5. It's a story of Naaman. And I think it's a great text to illustrate how animists read a text different than I would read a text coming from the West. So I'm going to use those that Naaman text as an example. I'm going to give some of the highlights. Viewed through the animist lens, Naaman is a man of great power. He has great position, and he's had won big battles. And so from the animist lens to do that, you have to have help from the spiritual world. But suddenly he's got this leprosy or uh, this skin disease, and um, he cannot figure out what the solution is for this. All his powers have failed him. But he hears about this prophet in Israel that is a great prophet, and so he's desperate, and he has the hope, maybe I can get over there and get some he- find some healing uh, with this prophet called Elisha. He d- actually doesn't know the name of Elisha at that time, but and so he takes off on a, uh, a journey. There's some really succinct points in there in each verse as you're reading it through the animus lens, but in, I'm going to make it a little bit shorter. I'll just highlight a couple of verses which show animism and this God of grace that we have that's diametrically opposed. So in 2 Kings 5.10, Elisha the prophet tells Naaman, says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Now the number seven was a number that was associated with Yahweh, the spiritual power of of Israel. So that number is quite, uh, numbers can be very important in animism. But anyway, he's given the command of what to do. So Naaman's looking at this and saying, this is the ritual I'm supposed to accomplish. I'm supposed to go seven times and wash in, in Jordan. But he gets mad and he says in verse 11, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Yeah. And you can see Naaman wants this ritual. It's like 
He's got to come out and he's got to stand and call upon the name of his Lord, not my, my Lord, but on his God, and wave his hand over the place. He wants the ritual, and that will cause the cure of the leper. It has nothing to do with Naaman and his relationship with Yahweh or anything else. He's just angry. He wants Elisha, the religious specialist, to perform a ritual and uh, unlock that spiritual power to heal him. So then he continues on in verse 12. And uh, Naaman makes this kind of animist spiritual confession. And he claims the powers of Syria's rivers are superior to any power over in Israel's river. He says, are not Abana and Parpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? And you remember I told you that physical, uh, there's this life force or there's usually spiritual powers attached to uh, uh rivers, mountains, trees, objects, inanimate thought. Mm -hmm. So we can see what Naaman's saying. He's saying, my gods in Syria are much more powerful than any god that you have down here. He's just, he's given up. But eventually he is talked into going down into the Jordan River. And it's amazing to me, animists see this in the West, we call it coincidence. Or we don't make the connection, but he goes down into the river and he does not wash seven times. He dips seven times. In other words, he's blowing the ritual. Yeah. And when you blow the ritual in animism, you're directly challenging, Naaman is directly challenging this, whatever he thinks is in this Jordan River. And he's saying, do your worst, hurt me, whatever wants to have to be, we can see a direct challenge. Hmm. And what happens? God heals him. And Naaman meets a different God. Yeah. He meets a, a God, not from all of his experience, not animism, not anything else, but something when he's done everything wrong, 100% wrong. This should not have worked. He gets what he was after. And then I think what's really cool is uh, the new confession that Naaman comes out. Second Kings 5.15, he says, I know that there's no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, Naaman didn't just say, wow, I met a really, really powerful God, or I met one of the most powerful gods in, in the whole universe. He right. says, there's no other God like this in the universe. New confession, yeah. 100% change around. But it's a God that acted different than all the others. He had met the God of grace in the waters of the Jordan River. I think that's just a cool text, understanding it from the animus lens and seeing how powerful that Old Testament text is right. in a way that I could not understand before until my animus practicing friends pointed out all of these underlying meanings that they could see yeah. in what was happening. It gives us a whole new appreciation of how biblical text acts in ways that sometimes we can't even see how it works. Yeah, and uh, just really that story punctuates the power of God's grace, you know, Naaman got exactly what he didn't deserve. And then, you know, if anybody listening and trying to live in a way that's thinking, you know, I've done a lot of bad things, I don't deserve anything good, this is the same God that uh, says, yes, you don't get what you deserve, you get my grace when you trust in Christ. You're exactly right on that. Powerful text in that way. Yeah. So this podcast is coming out around Halloween. If there was a animism type of holiday in our culture, it's the closest thing. I don't know. So what does what does animism look like? Not necessarily Halloween particularly, but just in the 21st century West, where do we see animism in our culture? 
Yeah, that's a great question. As I noted, every society has animus practice. And so uh, we sometimes, I think we would like to think we progress beyond all this nonsense. We don't believe in ghosts and spirits and, and everything else. It's not the case. Yeah. Uh, we, we do. <laughs> Animism is present in the United States, in Europe, any of the, uh, the progressive Western societies, we want to say, because it's part of our human condition. We just naturally go to this particular affinity. Yes. Um, even I was reading an atheist, I was talking in a book and I was reading and said the problem with atheism is to do good for nothing or be good for nothing <laughs> because right. uh, you always want to think if you're good, something's going to be happy, some spiritual being or some force is going to be happy and you should get that kind of reward out of there. One example that we have in our society is people wearing crystals. They claim they're good for health or they claim they're good for mental clarity or whatever it happens to be, what the claim is. Mm -hmm. uh, you can find them online. You can find them uh, everywhere else with all kinds of claims that go to it. Your action is first, okay, put the crystal on and spiritual power, ambient power, life force blesses you. Uh, sports personalities accomplish rituals before uh, contests, especially. Uh, if you watch a baseball player, sometimes they get up, they do have a little elaborate ritual because <laughs> they're going to hit the ball better than uh, uh, if they don't do that. And there's almost a fear if I don't do that ritual, then uh, I'm not going to be able to play as good. It's it's my basketball story in, in many ways. It's our human condition which causes us to do this. It's uh, and we can even find it within the Christian church. An example you can find in the prosperity gospel movement. It's, by the way, that's huge in Africa because the prosperity gospel movement can be just another form of animus practice. Okay. The whole thought is that if you give to God, then God will give back to you. So note the action. Yeah. The action is my actions first. I give to God, and then God will give back to you. So God's action is second. And you've taken what God has done for us, and you've turned it all the way around and becomes animus practice in that way. Yeah. We tend to, to like those things because it seems like we're in control, and that's not the case. Uh, a subtle example, and I'm going to use Christianity again, okay, so we can think that if I go to church every Sunday, or I give a certain amount of gifts, or if I'm following somehow following rules, that earns God's favor in a certain kind of way. No, mm -hmm. we do those things because we're responding what to what God has already done to us. So even in the Christian church, we find much animist practice. I heard an example where the prayer where a woman was lamenting that her group had just prayed, not prayed hard enough. She had a prayer group and said, we just didn't pray hard enough. And that's why God didn't respond to our prayer. Hmm. That is, again, that's animus practice because if we just pray harder, God has to respond to us. It can be very subtle at times. But again, just note that sequence is always, if we're saying that our action has to be first and God is going to respond to our action, we've gotten it wrong we got it we're, we're guilty of animus practice even within the christian church yeah even with the simple phrase like the prayers go up and the blessings come down i don't know how many times i've heard that but it essentially it's animus and i or i don't know it is if, it becomes it's, it's yeah. an animus it's a, in danger of slipping over right. into the animus if we start to believe that it's because we prayed that god has that god responds yeah so the positive way of stating it then is uh, you know a christian life is a life lived in response to god's grace it's always in response, the action of God happens. That's right, first. and our human condition fights that yeah. all, at all times. It yeah. tries to put us over into the animus practice, and even in the West. So, how might our blindness to animism in our culture or other cultures create barriers to the gospel? 
when you gave me the, uh, the outline on this, I thought about that quite a bit. How does our blindness to uh, what, what barriers right, that we don't even know because our human condition is creating these barriers and there is, we're moving into animus practice. And what we need to keep in, from, from my perspective, is anything which points away from the gospel message raises barriers to the understanding of this God of grace whose action is first, and we live our life in response to that. If we think anytime there's something we must do and our action has to be first for God to respond, then we point away from that very core of what is the gospel message. Where the church is established among animus practice, animus practice, people with a lot strong animus practice, people will always understand the church through their own lens. I was in a church in Southern Africa during the Lord's Supper, and a group of visitors had come to celebrate in the church, and they also attended Lord's Supper. And when they filed away from communion, they went clockwise. And there was a big uproar in the church because the members, some members of the church felt that you're supposed to file away counterclockwise Hmm. because if you didn't, you messed up the efficacy of Lord's Supper. You did not get the blessings that you might have thought you were supposed to get because you didn't accomplish the ritual correctly. So people always look at the church through the lens, their own lens, and the animus lens seems to come up quite often. During the Reformation, there was also much misunderstanding over the Lord's Supper. Uh, The lay people used to conspire with priests, and they would take the elements from the Lord's Supper and use them for their own purposes, which was maybe to take it home, put it under your pillow, and then you would have good health or good wealth or healing. uh, And the practice of dipping the wafer into the wine and then giving the distributing it straight to the to the person attending communion at that time was developed so that people couldn't pocket the wafer and take it home and use it for their own particular animist practice on the way so people see the uh, the rituals of the church through an animist lens unless they're taught correctly and understand it according to this god of grace that we've been talking about wow that's a big statement because i think that there's a lot uh, of ritual in church which is good but then that's it's very telling that that if somebody doesn't understand, then they're just going to think that there must be, this is just the right way to do it. And then why is there a right way? And yeah, I yeah. can see how you get sliding down the slope then. It starts to slide down the slope in animus practice. Yeah. And it may be that that um, the, the good intentions of the missionary, the good intentions of the pastor are there and present, but they're not being perceived in the same way as the good intentions are because of um, right. uh, our human condition. Yeah. And it turns into animus practice. So um, how does a good translation of Scripture impact animism? Well, an accurate, beautiful, clear translation of Scripture, it just challenges animus practice. It cuts kind of to the chase. The opposite of Scripture, which is not accurate or not clear, or it's in a language that's not fully uh, understood, is ripe for animus practice because uh, it all comes about performing it, there's kind of a mysticism to unclear or foreign scripture texts. And um, so you have an animist approach with, we're reading it, we don't understand it, but we have to read it. Or it can be even in some African independent churches, developed rituals where they cut text out of Bibles, uh, even they can't understand, but they, they know which text talks about healing. And then they'll eat the, the, the particular text of okay. the Bible, uh, not understanding what it is, but thinking the power is in the scrap of paper that has come and that they uh, have eaten that and brought that power into themselves through the eating. That's exactly what happens when people don't understand the power of God's word, when they see God's word as being something mystical or something that has power 
or ambient power that's not in, in the understanding. But when scripture is read, understood, then the story of God's salvation just cuts through loud and clear. And just as Naaman discovered the God of grace, then in scripture, that's God's message to us. The story of God's salvation comes through loud and clear, and we understand who God is. God is our God of grace. He gives us Jesus Christ. His action is that we have our salvation through Jesus, and we live our life then in response to the gift of grace that God has given to us. There's nothing we must do to earn that gift, and uh, we respond in thankfulness. That comes through in Scripture all the time. Clear, accurate, natural. When people are reading Scripture, it challenges animism every, every way along the line. Just as we talked about that text with Naaman, it challenges animism. All right, well, thank you very much for your time with us today to talk about animism. Really eye-opening to see how prolific this could be in society, how just keeping that straight that God's action is first and our response as follows. Just that that is, a on one hand, it seems like a minor shift, and on, on the other hand, it is the shift. It is it's the shift, the yes. shift yeah. And a uh, privilege to be involved in Bible translation work to try to help clarify that message for others and remind ourselves as well. So thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it. That's an honor to be with you. And uh, thanks for letting me talk a little bit about animism and uh, its effects on our faith. Yeah. So when Dr. Mike and I talked after the recording was off, we talked a little bit more about how really the human experience is just to say, things don't seem to be going my way and it must be my fault. Mm which is not a bad thing in itself to be, have some self-awareness and recognize that what we do has consequences, sure. but it must be my fault. And there is some force or spiritual thing out there that I could get on my side and make this mm-hmm. better if mm-hmm. I just knew how to do it and right. we talk about karma and luck and, right. um, you know, I'm, I'm just not living right or whatever. And, um, that's just part of the the human experience. And again, God's word speaks to that and says uh, there's a God that's on our side mm-hmm. and loves us deeply. And in spite of what we're experiencing in the world, we have a, a rock solid faith that we can lean into. Right. Yeah. So that is interesting because I, I think about like in Ephesians 6 and, you know, talking about, you know, spiritual warfare and, you know, yeah, there are those spiritual forces uh, like are constantly like it's a barrage and trying to turn us away. But at the same time, same author, you know, Paul says in in Romans eight, like that there's nothing that can separate us from God. So that idea of, you know, even though all of these things are trying to attack us and trying to get us to, to lose faith, God is continually faithful. Yep. And, you know, it doesn't mean that everything's going to go just right in our lives because we, you know, it's the already but not yet. Like we still right. live in that broken world. Yeah. But being able to say, like, God paid the price. Like, I don't have to worry about paying a price. I don't have to worry about, yep. you know, this special object or, you know, this special routine or is it all going to come back to me because I did this, but rather. God doing it all for us. That's right. And Satan is is really the great exploiter. Mm-hmm. He'll find that chink in the armor to exploit whether you know if you're if uh, if loneliness is a weak point for you, he'll exploit it. If money problems is a weak point for you, he'll exploit it. You name it, 
uh, he'll exploit it. And what that ends up doing is reminding us that no amount of our own self-righteousness can stand against all of that. Satan will find the weak point and exploit it, and that just drives us back to Christ, not our own righteousness, which is the point of the Reformation, ultimately, to recognize that we walk by faith alone uh, through what Christ has done for us, and only out of response to that we lead lives of good works, if we can say that, in thanksgiving to God. Our own righteousness isn't the the point, ultimately. That's just a response. Ultimately, our walk of faith is in Christ, and he's the one that protects and guards us against the the exploitation of the devil. Right. So as you are celebrating Reformation Day, thinking about how we are able to grow in our relationship with God and to better understand who he is, who he has called us to be, and that we have that in our Bibles and being able to read it in a language we understand and want to encourage you all as you're celebrating Reformation, as we're about to kick off for the 500th anniversary of Luther's translation of the New Testament into vernacular German, lifting a, a prayer of praise to God for his faithfulness, for his His righteousness that covers uh, the multitude of our sins, that he's made himself known and he is continuing to make himself known through Bible translation around the world. Yeah, so. Absolutely. That New Testament from Luther was what really solidified the Reformation and what gives us the opportunity to stand where we stand today and grow in faith through that uh, engagement with the Word that we do uh, on our own and even better with groups of, of people in our churches. And yeah, what an opportunity to uh, recognize the Reformation, not as the beginning of a movement particularly, but the renewal of access to God's Word, uh, something that we all have readily here and have the opportunity to give to others too through our uh, involvement and work of Bible translation. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. You can find past episodes of the podcast at lbt.org slash podcast. You can subscribe on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any place that you get podcast content. You can follow Lutheran Bible Translators' social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's Word in their hands. This episode of Essentially Translatable was produced and edited by the multi-talented Andrew Olson. Our executive producer is Emily Wilson. Podcast artwork was designed by Caleb Rodewald, and our music was written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Rodowski. So long for now. <laughs>